The Question, a podcast that exists at the intersection of pop culture and academia. We sit down and talk about our favorite stuff through the lenses of what we do and who we are. From Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University, Dr. Melinda Lewis here. I'm your host. I'm here with Bill Mongan, Associate Department Head of Undergraduate Affairs and Assistant Professor in the College of Computing and Informatics here at Drexel University. And we're going to be talking about what computer science is and isn't, the ways we can make the field a little bit more inclusive and accessible, and finally, the representations of computer science in media. Are you ready to like get this party started? Yeah, let's do it. Do you remember like when you became interested in computers? Was it like working with a bit of technology itself or was it just like the idea of technology or computers? Yeah, my father had a, a, a technical background and uh, he had gotten me, uh, it was a Mattel Aquarius, which uh, is basically a toy, but it was, uh, but it, and it, you know, it could play some video games and things, but, mm-hmm. um, but it had a basic interpreter. The Aquarius home computer system comes with all this and an amazing feature no one else has, a 13-inch color TV for just $99. And so I, I think I was only like two or three years old, you know, like I was I was barely talking. And uh, yeah, and, and but he sat me down and showed me like, this is what a variable means, you know, and, and things like that. But I knew that like I wanted my career and my life to, to involve, um, you know, using technology to do fun things. And I'm only relying on my popular culture knowledge, but thinking about like the one kid in the family who's like in the basement on the computer hanging out with dad, learning yeah. how to do this stuff and fitting into this like popular culture monolith, despite yeah. not wanting to be the popular culture monolith. I think you're right. It's just a passion about um, using reasoning and, and math and logic and science and experimentation with technology. You know, you don't have to have written code before. You don't have to have uh, a computer in your bedroom when you were two years old or anything like that. Um, but I did. And uh, and for, for the early 80s, when I grew up, that was pretty unique. You know, there, there weren't computers in every, every household. Yeah, I find that so incredible because I remember having a computer lab in school was a big deal and just seemed like so exciting as a prospect. Oregon Trail. And then also my parents kind of believing that computers were a fad that would inevitably go away. And like, mm-hmm. we're not going to invest in that because computers are going to be a thing of the past. So to hear you have this opposite experience of just like diving full in and recognizing the power of computers early on, I think is really exciting and dynamic. Yeah, me, me too. My, <laughs> my, and I was lucky. Our school had a, a computer lab and we had, you know, classes in typing and some desktop publishing and basic thing. You know, we'd make uh, holiday cards for our parents and stuff like that and print them on these obnoxiously loud dot matrix oh. printers, you know. <laughs> Egg, that's the one. <laughs> that's right. For hours. <laughs> it was just this new novel thing and I, I think even at that age like we knew you know we were we were looking at something that was really you know something new and something different that mm-hmm. and, and something that not everybody had yet you know like like that sense of you're, you're kind of living in the in the future a little well, bit well and I think popular culture at the time like with all the movies that were coming out at that time also made like tech just technology as a banner feel like this new frontier that seemed so unbelievable and yet so close at the same time an impossible mistake launched them into space. The adventure of their lives will be getting back home. Space Camp. And then you opening up these magical dimensions that were 
popularized, but like a new Narnia, so to speak. Like, how can this computer be the cabinet I go to to meet a goat man? And, and I think that gets to another another point about the way we have portrayed computers and technology uh, in in popular culture. You know, when we mm-hmm. look at The Matrix and, and, and movies like that, the person with the technological gifts, you know, of course they have a character arc, but that character arc usually involves, you know, something that is like, a, you know, some kind of emotional problem or they're detached from, from their community and then they're turning to technology for either relief from that or to solve, you know, whatever their character mm. arc is. Inside the Matrix, they are everyone and they are no one. We have survived by hiding from them, by running from them. But they are the gatekeepers. And there was this real kind of stereotype that uh, that that the computer person was, you know, was in the basement. And uh, and and today, I think we've we've really come to a place where we can celebrate that that ubiquity of, of the field. Mm. Um, as we think about things like self-driving cars, uh, a lot of us have seen what's going on with uh, with Tesla and some other cars now are doing uh, self-driving uh, capabilities. You know, technology that's just going to permeate our lives. I mean, we get on airplanes today, and and you look if you you know you look in the cockpit of an airplane, and you see de- knobs and devices and things everywhere. Um, how is that usable to a pilot in a systematic mm-hmm. way so that every flight is safe and and consistent? Um, there is a design methodology to that. I just assumed all those knobs in the cockpit were show. And then there's just one big start button <laughs> and everything. Right. Yeah. So just take off and, uh, and go. And, and please end. Flight 209 are clear for Vector 324. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our Vector, Victor? Now our radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. You know, it's 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 laughable, but it's it's we're getting there. These are becoming uh, informative devices rather than things that that you need to interact with. Mm. Um, what I think that speaks to is something that's also portrayed in media and popular culture. You know, the AI that turns rogue. You know, the RoboCop uh, uh, kind of thing. You are under arrest. Stop or I'll shoot. There are some who famously take the position that you know the the AI will rise up uh, against us, and um, I, I don't necessarily feel that way because it is still you know you can program things to be kind of evolutionary. Um, where I think we get into trouble is not the AI rising against us, but it's the human programming. Mm. unconscious biases into the system that then uh, evolve and it learns them. Uh, and we see this in the form of, you know, Google search uh, recommendations and YouTube search recommendations. It reminds me of a book that came out recently called Algorithms of Oppression by Sophia Noble. That's very much all of her work about how racism gets coded right. into the into the mainframes. And so the search engines that you the searches that you get regarding particularly like black women turns up like really racist, troubling stereotypes that are part of what exactly what you talked about. These uh, these biases that could just get worked in. Right. Uh, you know, yeah. And if a, or if a banking officer plugs in information about how to give loans and if, you know, if, if a zip code, for example, becomes a piece of data that it that it cues off of uh, because historically loans weren't given to people in one area or another, um, it can pick up on those kinds of things. And mm-hmm. so it's certainly possible that you could have someone writing code who is, you know, overtly racist and those things can make their way into a system. But I, I think what 
what happens often is that we, you know, it's these unconscious uh, biases that have that have sort of permeated the rest of society. Mm-hmm. And now you have people taking observations and data um, uh, from those periods when when we were doing things either knowingly or unknowingly, but we are evaluating the products um, of of those kinds of policies and procedures, and then automating them. Is there any example in popular culture? that you think does an adequate job representing computer science as a field or computer scientists? I, I do think that, that the kinds of portrayals we see fall into one of two categories, which is uh, that uh, either you've got the, you know, the Matrix-style programmer or the person tapping away at the, the keys on the With keyboard. Bad and, techno music uh, playing. Yes, and something Always, magical happens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we are an experimental science. We make discoveries by by trying things and by and by failing, and I, I don't think we portray that. And I I think that's a that's a universal problem, right? It's a that's a, that's an engineering and and uh, you know kind of STEM kind of problem. I think Hollywood's a little bit handcuffed there. The the piece where I do sort of regret is that is that often the scientist. You know, when we do look at the experimental methods, they are portrayed as having some underlying personal problem that mm. uh, that the layperson wouldn't have. You know, that that I don't think cuts across those fields in the way that we portray uh, that it does. The, the the Big Bang Theory comes to mind, for mm. example, uh, which is a show that I, I loved. I, I I you know I thoroughly enjoy, but I watch that show and I think. Who do I work with that exhibits any of these uh, personality traits? Uh, Nobody. How could you do that? (laughs) Do what? Choosing a new laptop is an incredibly personal ritual, but you have taken away weeks of agonizing thought, tedious research, sleepless nights filled with indecision. (laughs) Haven't I lost enough today? We could do a better job there, right, Mm -hmm. showing something that is a little more inclusive about the sciences. Yeah, and I think it's just interesting that anybody who is represented as having some sort of passion is regarded with not necessarily distrust always, but I'm thinking of like the the poet in high school, right, who's always kind of in the margin somewhere, or somebody who is super interested in like music. And how interesting it is that Hollywood pursues passions as something to be suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that at least follows my, my experience. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a certain age, at least when I grew up, that being really into anything was seen as strange by the people that weren't as into it. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter what it was. And then we all reached an age where we suddenly cared about each other's passions, you know, where being really into something was cool, you know, that, that this was something you dedicated your life to and look what you've done. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where that... That, that transition happens, but I, I've definitely seen both sides of it. Yeah. Hey, it's your mom. I have a question about that podcast you do. Are you on the Instagram or the Twitter or the Facebook? You know, like if I have an idea for a podcast, how do I get in touch with you? Love you. Bye. Sup, mom? Uh, yeah. So you can find us on all those things, actually. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just go to PopQuestPod on any one of those and follow. If you want to send us ideas, you can either go over to our website and leave us a message at Podcast, or you can get us directly at popq at drexel.edu. You can actually find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, I can help set it up when I get home, but then you have to promise me to rate and review. All right. Love you. Bye. Bye. 
all of this material has got me thinking when I went to college I went as a criminology major and at that time it was like peak CSI but as much as people kind of clowned CSI from like a criminologist perspective they couldn't deny the effect it had on the field like how do you kind of use popular culture or do you use popular culture how do you use it to confront confirm and reframe. What it kind of r- reminds me of is uh, uh, what you said about you know the pushing the start button on the on the mm-hmm. airplane. I'm a, a like a low time hobby pilot uh, of you know small airplanes. I, I wanted to get some perspective on what it was like to learn something out of my comfort zone for the first time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I I saw happen to myself was that I got there and I thought this is going to be like push start. Some dials are going to do things. I'm going to fly around and have a great view and have a nice time and come back. That's how it works in Indiana Jones. That's right. Exactly. Like that's exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I press. I (laughs) run from the bad guys. And it's a beautiful view. That's right. And then game over. You know how to fly, don't you? No. Do you? Oh, no. How hard can it be? I'm going to faint. Altimeter. Okay. Airspeed. Okay. Fuel. Fuel. And you realize when you have to do something, you know, kind of legitimately that there are a lot of other responsibilities involved. You know, there's there's paperwork and there's monitoring for safety and, and this and that and the other thing. And I, I think in computing, there is there is some of that, too. There is an attraction that comes from the the superficial face of it that that we get. And that's the part we get in, in the movies, you know, that um, you can be part of doing basically magic, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and technology is your key to do that. You're really into computers, huh? Yeah. What are you doing? Dialing into the school's computer. They change the password every couple of weeks, but I know where they write it down. And then you get there and you realize, oh, there's, there's a fair bit of mathematics here. There is a fair bit of logic and reasoning and design, and uh, this is hard work. So essentially everything I didn't see in movies. It is everything. Collaboration, <laughs> problem solving, and not just how do I break into the government. I, th- just, I think yeah. that's. I think that's right. Yes, and it's that's right. And and this is where you can use technology. I think to solve uh, big problems, you you have to be willing to get people in the room who scare you a little bit, who 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 do things in spaces that that you don't understand, but you have this mutual understanding that. I can bring something to you and I can teach you enough about the computing that that you can contextualize it to your field and teach me that domain knowledge about what you do. And then at the end of the day, the the, the domain specificity kind of disappears. It, you are you are using technology to to solve an exciting problem. And to me, if if you get excited about that, then you have a home in in computing. Friends forever. Friends forever. How do you approach a project collaboratively with all the translation within the project and then how do you communicate the goals while also challenging these fears about technology I, I am uh, fortunate enough to work on a on a team in uh, Drexel's uh, functional fabrics laboratory and they design wearable textile knitted antennas uh, through a collaboration between the uh, designers and textile researchers and electrical engineers uh, they have been able to design knitted patterns in the shape of uh, traditional antennas mm-hmm. and the old adjustable ones uh, you could basically lengthen or shorten and that tunes and detunes the antenna uh, for a certain frequency, a certain wavelength uh, of of a, of a signal. I just thought it was fun to put it up and down. I, <laughs> did, right. not, I did not That's recognize right. the function. When I was that was as far as I got when I was <laughs> uh, when I was young enough to have uh, rabbit ears. 
But I knew that if you moved them around and stretched them around, you got a better signal or, or a worse signal. And that is the idea that, that we put into practice with these wearables. Um, because fabrics are, are somewhat stretchable, uh, as you breathe in and out, or a mom in labor might have a uterine contraction, or you know, picture any number of uh, wearable applications. Yeah, so in thinking about the issues that have come up in your research with wearable technology, and thinking about how popular culture frames what technology is in relation to our bodies, we get a lot of narratives like The Matrix, like Minority Report, where we become cyborgs. Yes, it's really nice for pregnant women to be tracked in these very specific scenarios, but what is the slippery slope Mm -hmm. to where we become tracked all the time? I mean, I guess make me feel better. I I think it's happening today. Cool. Uh, Which doesn't make you feel better. It doesn't (laughs) make me feel better. And, you know, uh, we look at, yeah, social networks and things like Mm -hmm. that. And what is scary to me about those kinds of things is that we are creating that content we that, that we take pictures of our of our dinner you know and we put it on Instagram well that's tagged with your GPS location and a, and a timestamp and so if you're not careful about your privacy settings uh, people even your friends will know that, that okay that's where you are at that point in time and so it raises some questions about whose responsibility is that you know is that the user's fault uh, I don't think it is mm-hmm. um, you know and uh, uh, so we as as technologists as the people who do understand uh, how these things work I think need to do a little bit of a better job on the on the PR front and so if we could have a population that was better informed about technology generally uh, to be able to have a conversation about the way they protect their identity and their information in the same way that they can have a conversation about the way they protect their home I, I think we will have done the community mm-hmm. a service there right Right, that uh, you know, you can understand that you know when I post something to to Google or Facebook or wherever, um, it, it's out there and it may be out there in ways that I didn't intend, and it may even be out there in ways that they don't intend. Mm-hmm. Um, and to sum it all up, I think we we have in our hands, uh, you know, one of the most powerful tools of our lifetime. You know, and uh, but like any tool, it's uh, uh, we we need to learn how to use it. And the challenge is, unlike other kinds of tools, this is one that the general public needs to understand how to use a little bit too. Thank you so much for being here and talking to us. I don't know if I feel better or worse. (laughs) That's right. No, Uh, it's the perfect balance. I feel like when we talk about it, it's it's either always doom and gloom or like it's magic. Mm -hmm. But like I think what you've done, and I think rightfully so, is like create like that difficult balance of like we just – we need to think more about how we are using this technology. And I think to tell people to just destroy their phones and be off the grid is not a great idea. But to suggest that everything is going to be fixed and magical and wonderful um, encourages a complacency that's not good either. Well, thanks, Bill, again for talking with us. Thank you. This was so much fun. Pop the Question was researched and hosted by Dr. Melinda Lewis. Our theme music and episodes are produced by Brian Kantorik with additional audio production by Noah Levine. All of this was done under the directorship of Erica Levy-Zellinger, the deanship of Dr. Paula Moranz-Cohen, and the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. But we talking about practice, man. What are we talking about?